Well, welcome to the Sunday morning Bible study here at Sovereign Grace. We're wrapping up uh, in the Doctrines of Grace on the section on limited atonement. <clears throat> and in fact, I had planned to be done by now, um, but you know how that goes with me. Um, anyway, a question was posed to me about limited atonement. And I thought it was an excellent question, a very good question. And I thought, well, this is worth a, uh, uh, a time of study uh, in and of itself. You know, that we take an hour or so to look at this in regards to limited atonement. Here's the question. Is limited atonement fair? Fair question. It's a timely one too, isn't it? Because um, this very much speaks to the age that, that we live in and the, uh, and the idea of fairness um, that really uh, is preeminent in our culture. So <clears throat> those of us that are of the Reformed faith, and thus also familiar with our Bibles, this does not present an obstacle for most of us. Of course it's fair because this is what the Lord God has decreed. So thus, it's good. But our friends that are not of a Reformed faith, or maybe of no faith whatsoever, this is a very pertinent question for them, and one undoubtedly many of you have been asked to explain by friends and family members. So I thought, let's look into it a little bit and talk about it. And of course, like many of the things we do at the Sunday School Hour, there's an apologetic idea behind it. It's, it's to equip us to talk to others about our faith, not so much me trying to teach you what the Bible says, because I think a lot of you have a pretty good idea, at least, what it says, but how to take what God's Word says to us and how to express that to others in a way where we are demonstrating our faith and why we have hope in us. So pondering this idea, this question, two things came to mind for me as far as why many people have, a dif have difficulty with this idea of limited atonement. I think there are two areas that, that most people have a misunderstanding or a difficulty in when it comes to this. And the first one, of course, is sin. But, not just sin in general, but failure to understand sin's, let's say, depth, sin's hold on the world. 
it's not surprising that there's a struggle with this. Really, you consider that we are sinners living amongst other sinners in a sinful world. So this issue, we could say, is... Environmental. It's the old adage about a fish doesn't know the fish is wet because the fish is always wet and is swimming in water. We are swimming amongst sin. So we view sin apart from God's revelation to us and apart from God writing his word on our hearts we view sin as normal human behavior for the most part. And sure, even sinners agree there are, there are things that are bad things. Maybe even things that rise to the level of evilness. <clears throat> and sinners, by and large, will agree there are certain things that we should not do. Before each of us came to Christ, we had... Um, perhaps what we might call moral and ethical boundaries that we tried to live within. And we found it, undoubtedly, your experience like mine, you found it very difficult to stay within these boundaries that you were taught by your parents or by um, the society around you in general. So the idea was if you don't commit cold-blooded murder, you know, you're doing well. If you don't steal, at least don't steal too much. I mean, everybody steals a little bit, right? If you don't cheat on your spouse, well, if you don't get caught cheating on your spouse, you're okay. Then, then you're just like everyone else, right? It's by and large accepted, even celebrated. I mean, we just look at the, uh, our media, look at, look at our entertainment industry, and how things like that, that, that we know, and your average person who is perhaps not a Christian, uh, knows also that these things aren't, aren't right, that we should not do them. Um, but we find it entertaining, and, and, and we enjoy stories that in, involve sin. <clears throat> but apart from God's revelation in, in Scripture, I think we're unable to grasp the immense evil that we all do. We, we just don't, we, we can't conceive of it. We have a certain standard of evil that is like a James Bond supervillain. That's, that's evil. You know, or a serial killer. Of course, that's evil. Things of that nature. But we judge ourselves and we judge others apart from God's word off on, on, a, on a curve. Um, and we just want to be a little bit better than those around us. And, and that means that we're, we're fine, right? I mean, we've all, we've all gone to those sad funerals of unbelievers. And we've heard people get up, unbelievers get up and eulogize the unbelievers. And everybody's gained heaven because everybody has done a little bit better than the average, perhaps. Which, of course, we know if, you, if you're doing better, everyone can't do better than the average. I mean, right? That's mathematically impossible. Then your average keeps going up. But that's, that's a little bit thinking too deeply on this matter for most people. We view, apart from, again, when I say we, I'm speaking of, of human beings in general, we view sin as mistakes of little consequence in life. They're little whoopsies that we occasionally 
um, stumble over, as I said, if we're caught in them. We fail to understand the, the vast chasm sin creates between the sinner and God that cannot be bridged by man. We can't get across this gulf that sin has, has, has created between us and the holy God. And thus, we have no idea conceptually, naturally, how abhorrent sin is to the Lord God. And I think this is a primary reason why most people cannot understand or do not think limited atonement is fair because God can just forgive, right? He could just wink his eye and say, no problem, I'm just going to overlook that. Secondly, and we're going to drill down on these. We're also going to examine, you know, Scripture uh, quite a bit this morning because it really doesn't matter what I say, right? I mean, I could stand up here and I can give you very good logical arguments and perhaps there's someone that would be just as adept and perhaps more so that could get up here and give you a logical argument on the other hand. But what's important is what God says about these things, right? And that should inform our thinking and our logic. And the second area that creates the problem that leads to the question, is limited atonement fair, is love. Now this may be puzzling, but let me explain this. It's failure to understand love just like sin. How do we view love? Well, we, it's not environmental. We're not living in a world of love, are we? It's, it's really experiential. Oops. I probably spelled that wrong, huh, Linda? I do appreciate help when I, when I misspell things. Um, so anyway, it's what we experience. Love is something that, that we experience in this world. So what, what I'm proposing here is in our natural state of sin, we, um, we, number one, we can't understand sin, then neither can we understand love because human love is tainted by sin, is it not? Like everything else in this world. And perhaps I think, and here's, here's, here's the problem, here's the issue. One of the most difficult things to grasp for us is divine love. We kind of understand human love. Well, we experience human love. Understanding maybe is a, a too, too, uh, too high a bar there. But w the thing that we don't understand is divine love, the pure love that is God's love. We don't understand it other than it being revealed to us and this tremendous thing that happens when we are regenerated by God and God alone is, and we experience his love and then we get an idea of love that's completely different from human love. It, it awakens part of us that, that is I, I, perhaps we could say dormant, apart from 
the, uh, the quickening of God in our lives, or perhaps something that just is not there in our sinful state. <clears throat> but think about human love, how we experience love. We experience it most often as something that must be earned. Many of us have had relationships like that, whether when we were children or later on in life with people that required us to earn their love. Rarely do we find human love freely given. Sadly, even sometimes with parents, children feel they must learn, excuse me, must earn their parents' love, that the love of mom or dad is contingent upon uh, certain things. So you need to prove yourself worthy of another person's love. And maybe, maybe there are strings even attached uh, to that love. So God loving his people freely and saving his people freely, and I mean this in a sense that we really, we really do not experience in this world, this, the, the, the freedom that God has is impossible for us to experience. Um, he is totally free. So this is something that's revealed in Scripture and that we, we should struggle to understand. Um, but I would say it is a struggle because it's not our experience. It's something completely different. We, we, are, we are never completely free in the sense that God is completely free. We think of God's love like human love the love that we experience. We think of it, God's love is something we must earn. We must work hard and be good. God will love us if we do that. And so it is only by our merit that God will love us enough to save us. This is the idea most people have of God. And this is where we run into a stumbling block when it comes to this question, is the limited atonement fair? Well, why would God love me? I haven't done anything. I haven't done enough for him. You know, why would, he, why would he atone for my sins? So I think this contributes to the issue um, that we have. <clears throat> Let's get back to this original question, though. In what sense are we talking about fair? Unfortunately, in our day and age, it's like we've got to define everything we discuss. Otherwise, we're going to get off base. Someone's going to think something totally different. So I'm just going to use the uh, -the run-of-the-mill dictionary entry from Merriam-Webster, which defines fair as marked by impartiality and honesty, free from self-interest, prejudice, or favoritism. Okay, fair enough. But is this concept of fair found in the Bible? Well, of course, it is. I could tell you that, but let me, let's, let's prove it, right? Let's turn to Deuteronomy, first chapter, verse 17. And we'll see how this concept of fair is played out in Scripture. Deuteronomy 1, 17. Here we have Moses. And he's speaking to these judges he's appointed, these judicial officers. These are different from the judges in the book of judges. Those were military leaders. These are actually like we think of judges in our day and age. And he says to them, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. 
and the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. What is Moses telling these judicial officers? You must be fair. Treat everyone fairly. There we go. So, but, but, you know, Pastor Ken, you may say, Moses is a man. This is a man's idea. Okay, good. Let's see what God says about fairness. We're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 33. And it's a long passage. In the interest of time, I'm just going to be uh, reading verses 17 through 20. But what's going on here in Ezekiel 33 is the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Now, those of you that have been in the Wednesday night Bible study, there's that term. The word of the Lord came to a prophet. So, the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel in response to Israel complaining about how God was treating them. In essence, that God was not being fair. So, the heart of the matter is made very clear in verses 17 through 20, which we're going to look at. This is Israel's complaint and Yahweh's response. This is Yahweh speaking to Ezekiel. Yet your people say, the way of the Lord is not just... Okay, we want to pay attention to that word. We're going to come back to it. When it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to... To his ways. So our interest this morning in this passage is specifically on what the Lord God is saying about what is just and what is not just. We're not going to get into how this, uh, what the Lord is speaking of salvation here. That's, that's another matter that we could spend uh, an hour on that, that's tied into, of course, atonement. But, um, but, that's, but that, that's not our interest this morning. So... <clears throat> Bear with me. Let me get some uh, writing room here. So in this passage, three times we see the reference to just in the sense of, of not just. We see it, verse 17, twice, and verse 20 once. Now, the word here that we translate in English as just is a Hebrew verb, and it is takan. Takan is the idea in Hebrew of balancing out, measuring out, 
to figuratively, figuratively to arrange something, equalize something through the idea of leveling. And perhaps you noticed in verse 19, we also see the English word just. Verse 19, and when the, this is the Lord speaking, and when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Okay, so, but this isn't, it's not the same word in Hebrew. It's mishfat. Takan mishfat. Okay, so weighing as on a scale. Here, this is obedience to a command. Specifically, and most often, in Hebrew scriptures, obedience to a divine command. And this is a noun as opposed to the verb. So Israel is complaining that the scales of God's justice are not level. That God is not weighing their actions and their conduct equally. God responds to this, to this complaint, that it is Israel that is using the unbalanced scale in verse 17, his reply to them. And then in verse 19, God says that the measure that should be used is the divine law, that that is what he is measuring by, and that is what Israel needs to look at, not a scale where, you know, where Harry um, has got more sin in his scale than I do, so I'm doing better, but what does the word of the Lord say? What does God's law say? God is saying here that his measure is equally applied to all and they all must obey it. Is that fair or unfair? Well, that's eminently fair. Wow, I wish our world was like that right now where we had just everybody knows what the, what, the, what the rule is and you follow it, you're good, you don't follow it, then you run afoul of the law. But we have really have no idea anymore. So what does God say, though, in the New Testament? Well enough, in the Old Testament. Let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to look at the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And it does speak to fairness, but not human fairness. That's what we must, we must understand. So let's read Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Here our Lord Jesus is speaking. 
And he says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning. Early in the morning, 6 a.m., the, 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 the dawn, the sun's rising, to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, so that's the, like the, we would say that's the common day's wage for a laborer at this time. He hires them for that. He sends them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So the third hour is like 9 a.m. And he says to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour, 12 noon, and the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., he did the same. And about the 11th hour, 5 p.m., the end of the day, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, that would have been about 6 a.m. as the sun's getting ready to set, or excuse me, 6 p.m., the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour, that would have been five o'clock, those hired right at the end, came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first, the guys who went on the clock at 6 a.m., they thought they would receive more. That makes sense, right? But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, those last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. So the master here, what he's saying is he's setting the terms, right? Not the hirelings. They don't set the terms. He goes on to say, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Well, yes, absolutely. They do, and we often do too. So the last will be first, and the first last is how our Lord ends this parable. So what was the complaint of the first group of the laborers? They claimed unfairness, didn't they? Why? Because they worked harder in their mind for a denarius than the guys who came in at, at 5 o'clock, an hour before quitting time, who got the same wages. The master paid them all the same, no matter the length of their labor. Was it unfair? Let's examine that. Did the grumblers receive the agreed-upon wage? Yes, they got their denarius, didn't they? Were all the laborers given the same opportunity? Yes, they were all hired to work in the vineyard. They were all given employment. Did all have the same outcome? Yes explicitly so. They were all paid a day's wage for their work. Nobody was cheated. But still, it seems unfair, doesn't it? What is the point the Lord is making with this parable? We need to figure out what 
the Lord is talking about here. First, is he talking about economic systems? No, no, absolutely not. Is he talking about social justice? No, he's not. He, he tells us. Didn't he tell us what he's talking about right at the beginning? He told us. It's the, about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. And when the Lord says that, he's making, I, that's the key. This is going to be a parable. He's going to tell us a story that we can relate to that's about something that we don't know anything about, the kingdom of heaven. We only know about the kingdom of heaven from what God has revealed to us. But we know about working, don't we? All of us have had to labor. We can understand being hired. We can understand getting paid. We can understand being unhappy with the wages we have received. Who amongst us has not at some point been unhappy with working conditions? We're in a sinful world. Things are, are often not fair, but that's not what the Lord is addressing. Now, if we were talking about economic systems and uh, labor law, then sure, there, there, there's, a, there's an issue here. There's labor attorneys that could write briefs on this that would go on forever. And you could, you could talk to a dozen of them and get six different opinions on, on what's going on here. I've had to deal with attorneys. I know some of you do too. And they're great people. I love them, but I don't understand them. Anyway. <laughs> some, this is Christ's point. Some are called early, early in human history to the kingdom of heaven, and some are called later. Contextually, who, who can we think of here? Who was called early in a group? The Jews, right? Then who was called much later into the kingdom of heaven? The Gentiles, of course, the people that weren't Jews. Do you think maybe this is what the Lord Jesus is speaking of? Yeah, I think it's exactly what he's speaking of. Because this was a major issue, was it not, in the Jewish communities, in, in Judea and, and elsewhere. This is the, the, the cause of much of the early friction within the church was with Jews, other Jews, we should even say, because the early Christians were themselves Jews. There was friction here because they were taking this gospel and going out to whom? To the Gentiles. They were commanded by the Lord Jesus to take it. This was not something that went over well. The Jews were very jealous of what the Lord God had given them and entrusted to them, and they did not want to share it with others unless they came into the Jewish system, unless they became Jewish proselytes, unless the men underwent circumcision, etc., took place, took part in all the feasts, etc., etc., and essentially became Jews themselves. <coughs> So what the Lord is saying here, no matter when a person, and here he's talking, we can drill it down to people, but he's talking more broadly here for the sake of the analogy, for the sake of the parable. He's talking about two separate groups, right? And it doesn't matter what group you're in. If you're amongst the Jews and your people were called very early by the Lord God, you're in the kingdom just like the people that have just been called through the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. 
No one is superior when it comes to election. That's what the Lord's saying. Now, this shoots a big hole, just a little offhand comment, this shoots a big hole in dispensationalism. Because dispensationalism, those of you that have come from such a system, like, like I had when I was a, a young Christian, a very young man, um, there's this idea that Israel, physical Israel, is of a special status. That it is a, of a status that is preeminent over the Gentile uh, Christians. Well, that simply can't, that, that then is in opposition to what the Lord's teaching here. But for our purposes this morning, we can see the fairness of this situation. The fairness is the fact that this is in the purview of God. It's not what man thinks of as fair, because man's idea of fairness is self-centered. As long as we get what everyone else gets, it's fair. And if we get more than everyone else, well, that's even fairer, isn't it? But we don't like it when we get less than everybody else. Or if somebody gets something that we think they shouldn't get, they get the same as us, but they didn't work as hard, let's say. So Paul, in his teaching to the Romans on the doctrine of election, makes it clear that God's predestination, election, and calling is not based on those elected or not, not elected, not on them themselves, or even those by which man would presume to be chosen. And in Romans 9, verses 10 through 18, he answers the question about God's fairness here about injustice on God's part. And picking up um, after the beginning of verse 10 in Romans 9, he writes, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Fairness is God's purview, is what Paul is saying. And we, we cannot try to, when, what Paul's saying here in the doctrine of election, we can't look at it and figure out why him and not him. This is God's area. That's God's area of responsibility, not our area of responsibility. So think about, in the book of Acts, after this Gentile soldier, the centurion by the name of Cornelius, is saved, the apostle Simon Peter remarks in Acts 10, verses 34 and 35, we read, so Peter opened his mouth and said, 
Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every na nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Then back to uh, Romans with Paul. Romans 10, 11 through 13. <clears throat> Paul tells us, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches, riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a great verse. I love that. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But not everyone can, be, can call on the name of the Lord. Anyway, that's... Don't, we don't have time for that, um, that branch of the argument. <clears throat> okay, we have established that God is the one choosing the people atoned for, that, that God is impartial in his selection, that this category includes people from all nations and classes, that who is chosen often is counter to human tradition and custom. Paul again in Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, tells us, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's the important point. We need, we, and we talked about that from the get-go, right? That that's one of the issues that we have in failing to understand properly. Limited atonement. Going on in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. That's, that's a vital part of that verse. No one even seeks after God, regardless of what we think before God regenerates us, before we're quickened, and we think, I'm, I'm searching for God. Well, we're searching for something, but it is not the God of the Bible, it's not the true God, is it? It's the God that makes us happy, that excuses the sins that we love so much. In fact, maybe even is that sin. And then verse 12 going on, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, back to me speaking. What would then be fair and just? that all be condemned. That would be fair and just, wouldn't it? We're, we're, we're all condemned. I'm condemned, you're condemned, she's condemned, he's condemned, we're all condemned. Nobody's getting anything better than the other person. You would think that would, would then pe people be happy? Well, so we can demand justice, can't we? Of course, when we demand justice, then justice should also apply to the one making the demand for justice, right? I think of examples in my first career in law enforcement where there are certain individuals that would rise up in, in rank to a certain level and they would not be well-liked, they would not be popular for one reason or another. And I recall an instance where this one man <clears throat> who really wasn't a good man, but he was under investigation and he was relieved of duty and he was punished severely. And many of the men I worked with celebrated because they didn't like him. 
But it just didn't seem, I could see that this was, the injustice was being done, and I didn't necessarily like the guy. But it's like, and I told my partners, it's like, man, <laughs> what they've done to him, they can do to us. They've mistreated him. They violated all sorts of rules, regulations, laws. Of course, you got a lawyer. God bless the lawyers. Sued the city and won a whole ton of money. Um, but, but that's it right there. <laughs> justice needs to be impartial. And if we demand justice, then we also have to be ready to step to the bar of justice. Or there's something even better. And we know that, don't we? There's mercy. Now, one may not demand mercy. I mean, you could, but it, it just doesn't work, right? Why? Because mercy is in the purview, under the control of the one who sits in judgment. It's that person's prerogative, not the one who is before the bar of justice. Of course, you're well within your right, every person is, to ask for mercy, but we cannot demand mercy. And the hellbound that demand in the name of justice and fairness that all be cast into hell with them, they then are, by definition, truly wicked and truly deserving of hell. If you're hellbound, you know you're hellbound, and you want everyone to go to hell with you, then how much more like Satan can you be? Because that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants to drag all of God's image bearers into the lake of fire with him and suffer the same fate. Why? Well, number one, of course, he hates us. Number two, he hates God even more, and that's how he thinks he will hurt God by taking away his cherished image bearers and corrupting them. Think of this as we close. We're talking about fairness in the atonement. There is not a single soul, no, not one, who has genuinely asked Christ to save them who has been refused salvation by Christ's atoning blood. This is what the Arminians don't understand about Reformed theology. We're not saying that there's any... Well, in fact, there is not a single soul in hell weeping because Jesus rejected them when they sought the Lord Jesus. When we turn to the Lord in repentance and seek his mercy, seek his love, seek reconciliation with him, and we do this in sincerity, without refutation, we, do, we, don't, we don't turn for, we don't repent of, of that. Those then are signs of the elect that are included under this idea of limited atonement. And getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, because we've not come to this in the doctrines of grace, this points to the eternal salvation of God's people. And we've talked before about how the doctrines of grace all tie in. And we're, we're going to be moving on in them next time we meet for um, the adult Sunday school. Um, and we're going to see 
even more so. And this is what I want everyone to notice as we've gone through and think about how all of these are together. They come together. So thus, <clears throat> my point is, is that you'll hear about people who say they are uh, four-point Calvinists. They reject a certain part of the doctrines of grace. I don't see how you could possibly do that. You haven't thought it through properly, my friend, is, is my, my answer to you. So then um, look at our videos from the past, catch up with us, and then be with us as we go on, and you'll see how they're all connected. Um, I'm, I'm, of course, joshing on that. I don't exp if you want to, that'd be great. But, uh, but really, <laughs> I know you've got, other, you've got your own pastors to listen to, and you've got your own Bible studies, and uh, I give thanks for those of you that are here visiting with us um, this morning, and it was a blessing for me to stand before you. And with that, we will pray and we'll break. You'll have about a 12, if that clock is correct. No, it's a, we'll have about a 10-minute break before the 11 a.m. Uh, uh, preaching. So join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the atonement you have brought to us. Father, we give thanks for the doctrines of grace. Father, help us to understand these. Have the, have the Holy Spirit um, just wrestle with us if need be so that we can understand your message to us, Lord, because we know it's important. You've put it in your word. You know, you've raised up men to teach and preach these things, the great reformers who brought these things forth, and all the great um, men of, our ch of the church since that time. Father, we give thanks for this time. Um, bless it, and we, we ask for blessings uh, for the coming 11 a.m. worship service. We pray for Pastor um, uh, well, it's not Pastor Steve this morning. We, pay, we, pay, we pray for um, Pastor Rob, who's going to preach for us, Lord. Um, what a blessing. And we pray for uh, Pastor Mike, who's going to lead us in worship. May it be a great time of learning and worship. And, uh, Father, we're just so thankful to be here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.